0: There are no people, there are no people in the future, no people at all, there are no people in the future, where did all my people go, there are no people in the future, let me try my...
1: Everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome. Yes, it is Friday, October fourteenth, twenty twenty-two. Welcome to Raging Chickens Friday Politics Roundup. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week, we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly state and national politics. You can support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreoncom RCpress. You can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already smash the subscribe button like the stream for this show and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live and yes thank you for all the subscriptions uh this week Uh, we got some new follows on the podcast too as well that's absolutely fantastic and if you are by the way listening to this podcast wherever you get your podcast make sure you kind of like you know head on over to your podcast app and leave us that five-star review um, let, it, let everybody people know about what you like about the show. Uh, will you give us that five star review, say for example on Apple Podcasts, Apple Podcasts accounts for probably about yeah just under half about the uh, about places where people get our podcast, but also on Podbean, on Spotify, um, Stitcher, a whole bunch of different you know wherever you get your podcast, you'll be able to find us there. Um, but uh, you know those reviews actually really help. They help kind of get the word out and help other people find the show. And when you hit that notification bell on YouTube, right, or a podcast for that matter, uh, you get that notification when we go live too as well. So pretty fun. want to remind you too as well that uh, we don't want to let Paul Martito and his oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. That's why Raging Chicken has teamed up with Level Field to launch a truly community-rooted pack and to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. That's ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Net. And I want to give a special shout out to um, some folks who contributed to uh, my son's fundraiser. Uh, he had to give a uh, he had to give it was a project for school and they had to choose something that they hadn't done before. Right. It was kind of like this, you know, kind of get experience in doing new things. Right. Getting outside of your comfort zone kind of stuff. One of the options was to do a fundraiser. And so he decided to go ahead and he did a fundraiser for uh, to buying banned books. Um, to distribute to the Little Libraries in conjunction with the Penridge Improvement Project. Um, we wanted to raise money so that uh, to support that organization and um, make sure that people had access to these books that the Penridge School District keeps on banning, <laughs> right? So it was pretty cool, and he started off, and at first, you know, he just kind of did his own thing, and he had a modest goal of 100 bucks, and uh, it was pretty good. And uh, as of uh, this morning, um, he was approaching the $700 level, um, and I think we're going to close it off over the weekend so if there's anybody who's out there I'll put a link in uh, in kind of the show notes today and I'll link into today's uh, uh chat too as well if you uh I want to get out there and you want to kind of give a uh, um you know uh, If you want to basically help him out and you want to help uh, raise books. Oh, wait, I just checked. You know, I want to say, well, let me give you the exact number. We are over $700 now. Uh, He has raised a total of $735 now. Um, I will put the uh, fundraiser link right in today's chat. Um, So if you feel like uh, you want to kind of help them support, we're probably going to close it out over the weekend, like I said. And uh, we've got a list of books that we are going to uh, purchase and give to the Penridge Improvement Project to distribute to their libraries. And um, whatever, we'll spend some of that money on the books and uh, we'll basically kind of donate the rest to Penridge Improvement Project to uh, to help support their efforts um, for the ongoing into the future. So we want to stock them up now, but also make sure that they've got the funds to keep those books coming um, to those little libraries and the other amazing work that they're doing at the Penridge Improvement Project. So uh, thank you all who have already contributed. Um, I can't believe that, uh, you know, in we're over $735, uh, pretty amazing. So thank you so much. Um, on today's show, uh well you know it's been a busy week and uh obviously there is absolutely no way that we're going to be able to cover everything uh that happened this week so uh here we go um so this week uh trump gets subpoenaed yep just last night we got that right uh by the january 6th committee um the big question whether that was going to happen or not they did what that's going to mean we shall see And the U.S. Supreme Court is set to take a wrecking ball to higher education admission policies designed to help level the playing field for black students and students of color. Yep, we are kind of winding back the clock here, uh, one Supreme Court case at a time. And according to a bombshell report in Bloomberg by Josh Idelson, a former manager at Starbucks in Buffalo, New York, testified under oath to the National Labor Relations Board that he was, quote, instructed to single out and discipline pro-union employees, unquote. The manager, David Allman, testified that, quote, Starbucks higher ups listed names of employees the company had determined supported the union and told him to punish them, unquote. And Leonard Leo. Yes, uh, you know, Leonard Leo, uh, thanks to the amazing work of. uh, uh of Alyssa Bowen and the folks at the True North Research, amongst a whole bunch of other folks, but uh, we've had Alyssa Bowen on the show uh, several times to uh, kind of shine a spotlight on the uh, influence of Leonard Leo and other kind of billionaire dark money funders. Uh, but anyways, uh, Leonard Leo starts to get the you know scrutiny from the national legacy media, you know the scrutiny that he deserves, right? So this week there was a report in the New York Times. Um, that basically documented his influence and the powerful right-wing network that he has created and how he's turning his sights on the midterm elections and beyond. So check it out. And a new study in the ILR Review shows that, quote, unionization through one's career is associated with a $1.3 million mean increase in lifetime earnings. And that is larger than the average gains from completing college got that so this is a this is incredible right because this is what we always hear about college education is college worth it well yes why because over your lifetime you'll earn about an extra million dollars in earnings for college education right with unionization you're talking about a 1.3 billion dollar increase in your lifetime earnings right without the student debt (laughs) right so if you ever had a question about why unionization is important for like a middle class or anything approaching a middle class and basically getting people out of poverty here you go here you go and a little closer to home pennsylvania republicans have introduced their own version of the don't say gay bill and guess what it's even more restrictive than florida yes you heard him say it right doug mastriano wants to be the florida of the north And uh, you've got some Republicans who are already serving in the state legislature who uh, are already operating on those principles. And the ACLU, we talked a little about this last week, but the ACLU has filed a complaint against the Central Bucks School District with civil rights divisions of both U.S. Departments of Justice and the Department of Education. The complaint argues that the district is in violation of both Title IX and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, for creating a hostile environment for lgbtq students yep and uh here you go the proud boys can be heard yelling we are penn state yes that's right Penn a penn state group calling itself uncensored america which was founded by the former president of penn state's chapter of turning points usa and who was a field organizer for trump 2020 just for a little background so when they say uncensored america just give you that frame <laughs> right anyways they're bringing the founder of the proud boys gavin mcginnis to penn state on october 24th now it is being billed as a comedy show um uh, mcginnis is being joined by a self-proclaimed professional troll um for there so we are gonna have a laugh So yes, the Knitley Lions will be certainly treated to all the hilarity of McInnes' misogyny, his racism, and his advocacy for political violence. It should be hilarious. (laughs) Yeah, so needless to say, this is kind of like a a kind of Boom, exploded about whether or not McGinnis should even be allowed to be on the campus, given the given the fact that his role of his organization had in the insurrection and his his, you know, blatant advocacy for political violence. But we shall see. So this uh, it's going to all be framed around the cancel culture debates. Right. And it's going to kind of inflame people on those sides around kind of freedom of speech without ever a real Investigation into what we're talking about with freedom of speech. And Will Bunch has got a great piece on the Philly Inquirer about this um, this week. And former Central Bucks school board member tweets out a thread about the ongoing trauma resulting from her time on the school board during the rise of extremism in the district. And I want to spend just a little bit of time on that because I think, you know, we've got to be talking about what the impact on people has. I remember uh, uh, Diana Lagerman, you know, she's been on this show too as well. Uh, She ran for Central Bucks School Board and she's written extensively about this, about the kind of attacks that she faced, the kind of threats that she experienced. Um, And um, here we get a a member of the school board who had been on the school board who uh, basically is saying that even after she stepped down, she's still a year later practically is still reeling from it. Anyways, uh, the uh, in today's last call, we got, yes, the Rings of Power finale is streaming now. I have not yet watched it, um, but I have been watching it. Um, I'll have some general comments to say on that. I don't want to give any spoilers, but there you go. And the House of the Dragon is uh, closing in on its uh, finale, too, as well, for its closeout of Season 2. Um, that has been, uh, I've really enjoyed that too. Um, we can talk about that one too as well in general terms. Um, so even though those two are closing out, we can look forward. Yes, we can look forward to the coming of season two of the wheel of time, which is coming out in, uh, I believe early November. So that's uh, something to look forward to. And then hopefully uh, Amy and I, uh, Amy and connected, and I will be able to find a time where we can kind of give a little, uh, Uh, thoughts on Season 1 and preview of Season 2. And for more PA Progressive Talk, you can tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern. Um, At 9 p.m. Eastern, uh, his YouTube channel, Facebook, uh, Twitter, wherever you get your your uh, uh, streams. And right now, Rick is on the uh, Working Class Heroes Tour. Right. He's been going out through, in particular, the upper Midwest, kind of interviewing people in communities across the country um, who are basically fighting to improve the quality of lives in their communities. Right. And the, the whole premise of the tour is like, look, at one time. You know, things were looking up, right? They were looking good, right? You you had a solid middle class that was being built. It was not perfect, right? You still had rampant racism. You still had kind of inequality. Capitalism was still churning people. I mean, a whole bunch of things were still wrong. Let's be clear about that, right? However, in that post-war period for kind of a decade or two, um, you basically had this kind of like, rising incomes, you had a sharing of the uh, 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 productivity among workers, Um, you had a, uh, you know, the boats like were kind of lifting across the board for the most part. Um, again, there was contradictions there, too, as well, but, but still. And then, of course, we see how that kind of turn beginning in the 70s and the 80s when we see the kind of destruction of that, the ripping away of union rights, the kind of um, destruction of communities, the impoverishment, the kind of gross inequality of wealth that kind of um, becomes policy, right? And now, right? It's not all you know, doom and gloom that people are kind of fighting back and work in their communities to kind of, you know, change things and kind of to regain that sense of community, this time by lifting all boats again. So basically going back into a lot of these communities and kind of talking about that, both the history and the kind of the struggles that um, they're facing now and some of the victories. So check it out. The Working Class Heroes Tour and the Rick Smith Show. You can find all the information. Head on over to the ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all these platforms and about his tour. And you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast if you haven't already. You can find it on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast, rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Yes, make sure to follow them on Twitter at at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And it is an invaluable resource for all of you uh, for both information and thought um, as we approach the midterm elections attention all you gamers out there uh the game in that's with two n's the game in is a quicker town-based black family-owned gaming store they're friends of the show they've got everything for retro n64s to the latest consoles video games for all platforms collectibles action figures funko pops walls of funko pops and kids get discounts on the report cards when they get a get discounts when they get A's at the report card right back to school it's great Check him out on Facebook um, and follow him on Twitter at, at the game in. that's with two ends. If you got a question about a game, looking for something hard to get, shoot him a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. Special shout out as always goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at Songadayman. That's with two ends at Song of Dayman on Twitter. And coming up this Monday on Out to Coop Live, I am thrilled uh, to be welcoming Sharon Ward to the show. Uh, you may have seen Sharon Ward's name um, being cited in multiple articles um, about the school board wars um, here in uh, Bucks County and around this. Well, Sharon is a senior policy advisor for the Education Law Center, which is a statewide nonprofit legal service and advocacy organization that works to secure quality education for Pennsylvania children with an emphasis on students that are mostly underserved. Um, I've known Sharon... I'm well not she you know sharon and i don't know each other extensively or something like this but i've uh known sharon for her work that she was had been doing um with the uh, pennsylvania budget and policy center she is the founding director of the pennsylvania budget and policy center um, she also worked um, with uh, the governor wolf's administration in his budget office and led a government-wide transformation initiative um, to, to help state agencies use technology data and collaboration and social policy innovation Um, she's just been just great stuff and she's been doing amazing work with the Educational Policy Center Um, so we're gonna be talking to her about school boards book bans hostile environments and the threat to justice and democracy in our public schools Um, join us on Monday that is Monday October 17th at 7 p.m. on out to coop live fantastic and want to remind you once again, look, we want a progressive future. We need progressive media. Support Whole No Punch's homegrown progressive media today. Become a patron from Raging Chicken for as little as 5 bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. We're here for the fight, and we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement and the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as 5 bucks a month by heading to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Whoo, that's a long intro. (laughs) Well, welcome, everybody. Um, It is great to have you once again here on this Friday, October 14th. Uh, It's pretty um, remarkable that we are already two weeks into October, which means that we are just about about three weeks, uh, a little more than three weeks away from, um, from the elections. So we got one, two, three three, then one, two, three, four, three or four days. So it's over three weeks uh, for the midterm elections. Um, I know that all the preparations are being made um, for what we're doing. I will be at my polling place um, in Percisee. I'm the judge of elections there. Um, And uh, thank goodness that we have a super good crew Um, that is really dedicated to ensuring that everybody has um, access to the ballot and the kind of uh, the right to vote. Um, And it feels like a really good time to have that kind of group of committed people like that. Of course, there's been, you know, growing concerns of polling places across the country. Um, They're worried about threats, they're worried about potential violence. You have um, a bunch of these kind of right-wing militia groups who... uh, are you know threatening to show up at polls and intimidate people and things like this? You know we shall see um, how that all plays out. Um, but I'm just hoping that we can have a relatively problem-free uh, election in my own polling place. Um, and just you know so ahead of these elections, just a, a shout out to everybody who kind of volunteers their time, um, you know, just to help out with the the machinery of democracy, if you will. Um, um then there's all the people who are out there doing the campaign work, um, that are looking to basically uh, you know, kind of get some really solid folks elected. Um I've been loving seeing what I was happening with the Gwen Stoltz campaign in my uh the Pennsylvania's one forty third district, excuse me. Um uh, the one forty third district. Um great stuff happening in the one forty fifth with Jim Miller's campaign. Um you know, um, Mark Pinsley is kind of uh, campaigning against this kind of, you know, right wing climate denying, COVID denying, <laughs> you know, school board extremist. Um, and so, uh, you know, he's in a fight for for that seat in the Pennsylvania's 10th Senate district. Um of course, we've got Ashley Ahas in the Pennsylvania First. I'm going against uh, Brian Fitzpatrick machine. So uh, a lot lot of moving parts going on. Um, And so I think it's really going to be a question of turnout um, if we are going to actually be able to um, do this. Let me just look at something real quick and make sure that I'm not messing up this stream because sometimes people... Uh Nope. Okay, good. Um, sometimes I don't realize there's a technical issue and some people will text me saying, Hey, something's wrong. Um, But no, that's not it. Okay, good. <laughs> Anyways. So let's get into it. Uh, Look, I, I don't have a whole lot to say about, I mean, I assume that you've heard the news about the January 6th committee subpoena subpoenaing Trump. They had their kind of um, potentially last hearing yesterday and laid out the evidence. Once again, we saw a kind of new, uh, give information, you know, I think it's pretty straightforward in terms of the case that they have been made. Uh, they've made the big question is always going to be is what what kind of accountability are we actually going to have. Right. Um, it's one thing to issue the subpoena. Um, the question is what kind of pressure is going to be put on the Justice Department to actually bring, bring charges Um No one is actually expecting Trump to appear for the subpoena. Um, So that could potentially lead to additional charges of him kind of violating a subpoena of Congress. We shall see. This is one to just kind of um, kind of keep watching. Um, I do think it was a good idea to have this hearing where you're bringing it all together and making the closing arguments once again, just to remind people of how devastating. Um... This could be for democracy and um, all the folks that were involved. Everybody knew. Right. And all these election deniers, you know, that there's evidence that was presented yesterday. Right. That, you know, even Trump was told that he lost the election. He was aware that he lost the election and yet he still was going to refuse to give up power. Right. So, I mean, how much more evidence do you need that there was like, you know, intention um in kind of stoking a coup i mean come on and they had you know had planned it ahead of time you had roger stone calling for violence you know all this kind of stuff so we have pictures now of roger stone meeting with the proud boys and the oath keepers and you know i mean this is all kind of laid out um and we're going to see whether or not um there is equal justice under the law uh, whether or not that the people in the major political parties uh, are going to seek say prosecution Um, And to what degree the voters, right, all of us are going to hold elected officials accountable when it comes to the midterm elections. Right. If you are somebody who's supporting the, you know, the the fabrication that the election was stolen and you are running your campaign on that, and you, you now have information in your hands that shows you that these people knew that they lost the election and they were going to resort to violence to overturn kind of the peaceful transfer of power, we have an opportunity to kind of say that those people do not get to sit in office anymore. Or, like what I think is likely going to be the case in many districts, especially ones that already have sitting Republicans, or that Republicans are just going to vote for their team. You know, under that idea, like, oh, well, you know, we're you know, yeah, Trump may try to steal democracy, but our agenda is still kind of winning. Right. We're still kind of we're still we overturned Roe v. Wade. We're about to get, you know, um, kind of to gut some of the uh, powers of the administrative state to kind of regulate things like climate change. We're going to get rid of, uh, you know, the ability of uh, black Americans and people of color to be able to have equal access to higher education, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, yeah, as long as I get as long as I get mine, get my ideological agenda, then I'm fine. And I'll vote for, you know, the person who voted, who was actively supporting the myths to overturn democracy. So we shall see. Um, that's say the uh, U.S. Supreme Court this week um, is basically, well, it's set up to take this. Um, <sighs> it's set up to gut, basically, the, um, the admission standards for, here, let me just bring it up. Uh, the admission standards for. Uh, higher education. So uh, this is a report from the Philadelphia Inquirer, a um, piece by um, Devontae Torriente and, and Ty Parks for the Inquirer. So let's give you a sense of what this is. Um, read you a couple paragraphs. So as black students in law school, a field that remains one of the least diverse in the country, the role of race in higher education admissions is never far from our minds. Right. Um, They're writing for the Inquirer. The reality is that uh, is why we are particularly concerned about the latest Supreme Court term. In the next few months, the court is set to take another wrecking ball to its legal precedent. This time, the court is poised to undermine its rulings that have helped level the playing field for black students and other students of color. On October 31st, seriously, Halloween. Right. On October 31st, the court will heal arguments for two cases that challenge the constitutionality of using affirmative action in the admissions process at colleges and universities. The cases, Students for Fair Admissions versus the President and Fellows of Harvard College, and Students for Fair Admissions Incorporated versus the University of California or North Carolina, could fundamentally reshape the landscape of higher education and limit social mobility for students from marginalized communities. They could also unravel years of legal precedent. And they go into this um, in um, for past rulings. Right. So, for example, in 2003, the court determined the U.S. Constitution allows for affirmative action and college admissions permitting schools to consider race while assessing students' applications. The court, however, observed that schools are only allowed to use race as one of many factors that college universities consider when evaluating a student's application. And in early 2022, the court agreed to hear a potentially paradigm-shifting challenge brought by students for fair admissions, an organization with, in our opinion, the writer's opinion, a misleading name and vision. The group's efforts, if successful, with eradicate race-conscious college admissions processes that seek to increase access to higher education for Black students and other students of color. Right. And they kind of go into this and know what's so, you know, critical, you know, critical to understand. Right. Is we could see this as analogous to what's happening at the on our school boards in k-12 through 12, right about this anti-crt stuff um and then crt of course when they say critical race theory really that is a stand-in for any kind of um consideration of race of having kind of race conscious education and maybe clear what i mean by race conscious education race conscious education means that you know you don't pretend that we just don't see race right we're not colorblind no right we recognize that there are disparities that are are rooted in the racism of this country our history our past and our present right we recognize differential kinds of privilege right we recognize that i as a white guy right am granted more cultural capital in this country right not by what i've done Not by my merits, not by what I've done, but by the nature of being male and being white in this culture, right? I mean, I know that, right? I mean, and because I recognize that doesn't mean I feel somehow kind of oppressed that I recognize. No, because it's a reality, right? And if education um, is supposed to do anything, right, it's supposed to be able to recognize realities, right? And realities are not always comfortable ones. They don't all make us feel cozy, Right, and that's what real education is about. Right, um, we can also, of course, you know, take the model of education, which is about telling ourselves stories about ourselves, which makes everything feel good. Right, we can disnify our history, if you will, um, or we can deal with it concretely. Right. So that's a, that's, you know, the CRT stuff, right. But the, the whole, the whole push, the anti CRT stuff is basically to go back to storytelling as opposed to education based in kind of the way things actually are with all its contradictions and, and, and conflicts struggle, but basically, so we have the tools of analysis so that when we go forward, right, we can make different choices, right. Or at least we have to be conscious about the choices that we are making instead of just saying, pretending we're not making choices, we're just living our lives. Right. The admissions to higher education is an acknowledgement, right? The kind of affirmative action in higher education is an acknowledgement of the reality of American life, right? Which is there are disparities that are directly connected to race, right? And it's not connected to some sort of genetic understanding of why, right? You know, you're not basically saying, well, look, we have this person who is genetically inferior, um, but we want to help them out too. No, Right. This one is saying that, no, these kind of disparities in our culture are rooted in structural inequities, right? And a long legacy of white supremacy and racism in this country. I mean, that's just kind of the history of this country. And so the Supreme Court, what they they point to is like, look, you had affirmative action programs are put into place. Supreme Court heard a case in 2003. And the idea was that, look, of course you can consider race as one of the factors. Not the only factor, right? They said it's not the only thing. Right. But we have admission. Now, I'll give you an example. And I've I've used this one before on the show. Probably haven't talked about it in a while. But the states of the higher education. Right. I remember looking at this with uh, at, at Kutztown University in particular years ago. And one of the missions of Kutztown University. Right. And states of higher education is that, you know, it's a public serving edu- uh, um, entity. Right. So they're designed to basically. Um, serve the surrounding communities and provide kind of affordable access to high quality education for, you know, kind of underserved communities, especially. Right. Uh, Whether you're talking about kind of uh, uh, underserved in terms of race or underserved in terms of uh, class, whatever you're talking about. Right. First generation college students, the whole the whole nine yards. And it also says that, you know, the the student body should kind of reasonably reflect the surrounding area. Right. And I remember years ago that, um, you know, Kutztown University was, was, you know, embarrassingly white, right? Now, don't get me wrong. It's still pretty white, right? But the numbers of, say, students of color, right, were extraordinarily low. And, like, that by itself, right, doesn't automatically lead us into a conclusion or or automatically lead us to the problem. But when you put it in context, you basically say, well, look, you got this, the surrounding area has changed dramatically in terms of its demographics, right? The, you know, the, the, the surrounding community was much more diverse, right? Um, and was not reflected in the emissions. And so I remember at the time that, you know, it was president Javier Ceballos. Uh, he was the president of, of Kutztown university and probably the only the one thing that I will give the guy credit for, um, read there is that, you know, they put, they actually put efforts toward increasing the diversity of Kutztown university. And, you know, it wasn't him alone, but they they, they really had a, a strong push for it. Some of the ways that they did it, I found deeply unethical. Um, like for example, they would just kind of uh, in order to hit kind of, you know, a kind of increase in kind of the emissions of people of color. Sometimes they would just say like, Hey, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to admit you without kind of like uh um, we're going to kind of admit you here, but not per, you know, not kind of grapple with the resources that you're going to need to kind of come to this institution. Right. So, you know, you'd have folks who'd come here and then find out that they're kind of alone. They don't have a kind of connection to community. There's not resources to understand, uh, or to kind of, you know, help them as first generation students, particular first generation people of color, um, and they experience kind of racism, and there's no place to turn, and they end up kind of dropping out, and then I was saddled with debt. Right? That's not a way that you do this, right? Because at the same time that stu- they were in, they were um, they were admitting more students of color to the university, um, they were also cutting programs designed to help those very students, right? So that that's what I mean by unethical, right? I mean I think that just you just that's that's bad for those 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 kids, right? So anyways, but they did did increase the numbers. And you know, we have, I mean, decidedly, if you take when I started there 20 years ago um, and now we have a decidedly more diverse student body. Right. And the credit does go to some conscious decisions being made by the university to say things like, hey, look, we think it is valuable that our student body reflect the broader community. Right. Not only is it something that we want to make sure that they have access as part of the mission of the university, but also grappling with ideas and be an education, the educational environment that better reflect the way the world actually is, is better for all students. (laughs) Right. So the, the Supreme Court case in 2003 was basically saying, yeah, you can consider race. Right. And it's a it's a it's a goal. Right. You know, it's among other things so that, you know, you're not just kind of like, you know, going around and kind of like grabbing kind of people off the street because of the color of their skin. No. Right. You're you're looking at their academic records and all those other kinds of stuff. But you say you have an interest in doing that. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, well, yeah that's fine. Right. Especially in institutions like in this piece in, in the the Inquirer that I was reading from. If you look at things like law schools. Right. Law schools are overwhelmingly white. Right. And yet these are the people who are writing the laws for this country and arguing stuff. Right. And look, if we have learned anything. Right. You know, if if experience matters. Right. Experience with conditions and the perspectives they bring to the table, that kind of matters. Right. And so you think about all these cases. Right. All these cases about, say, they have to deal with racism that have to do with uh, like historic uh, structural inequities and all those other kinds of stuff. You know, if the only people that are there available to argue those cases right, are privileged white guys from or right, men and women, right, Uh, from Harvard. (laughs) Right. That's a problem because they might be able to argue abstractly, but they don't have the kind of the rootedness in the issue to be the most powerful advocates. Right. So. This is what we're going to see um, get played out in the Supreme Court. And it's been widely discussed that they think that uh, this Supreme Court will probably get rid of that. Now, now, well, good, they, we might be surprised, but um, this is just one more chink in the kind of multicultural democracy uh, future. Uh, one more kind of like, you know, cut against it. One more pillar being pulled out from the um, from, you know, from the base. So I don't know. So we shall see. We'll try to follow that as it goes forward. Um, again, that it's going to be on October 31st. Um, those he- those um, That's going to be heard. Good morning, Emily. The other thing that I found really fascinating, this was a piece that came out in Bloomberg uh, by Josh Idelson. And uh, just so you know, if you go to get to the link in tonight uh, today's show notes uh, for this article, the link actually refers, is, will point you to a truth out, article about this case, about this article, because the Bloomberg was available on the first day. Um, you could access it, but now it's behind a paywall. So I did a link to the oh, truth but So I'm looking at what I'm reading from here is going to be from uh, the, uh, the Bloomberg article. So it's a short article, but I want this is important. So here it says, a former Starbucks corporation's store manager in New York Said he was instructed to single out and discipline pro union employees for unrelated reasons, such as wearing purple pants. Okay. David Almond, who managed a series of both Buffalo area cafes, this is important because Buffalo is where those first Starbucks stores were unionized and where um, a number of those union activists who came out of that struggle, who have been going on to help other stores, have been targeted and lost their jobs. Right. So anyways, David Allman, who managed a series of Buffalo area cafes, testified under oath to a National Labor Relations Board judge in August that Starbucks higher ups listed names of employees the company had determined supported the union and told him to punish them. The transcript of Allman's testimony was obtained by Bloomberg through a Freedom of Information Act request. Allman said the list was read to him by a manager the company had deployed to his store as a rundown of employees there, uh, there with pro-union sentiments. I'm sorry, let me read that sentence again. Allman said the list was read to him by a manager of the company had deployed to a store as a rundown of employees there with pro-union sentiments. Other managers later ran through the same list with Allman and suggested ways to penalize the employees in ways that were not related to the union, he said. In one case, a district manager asked him whether a particular person on the list had committed any past infractions. When Allman responded that this person was a great employee, his superior told him to come up with something. Quote, she said go through her files, Allman said, according to the transcript. She's a long-term partner. I'm sure there's something in there that we can use against her. That's what that manager told him. This, of course, is all illegal. U.S. Labor Board prosecutors have accused Starbucks of illegally trying to stifle the union campaign sweeping through its stores. Around 250 of its 9,000 corporate-run U.S. stores have voted to unionize as of last week, the NLRB said. Starbucks Workers United has filed labor board claims accusing the company of illegally terminating more than 80 of its supporters, including a prominent activist in the Buffalo region recently fired for refusing to remove a suicide awareness pin. Now, in that case, if I remember correctly, there was a... um. There was a, a a member of the team, right, a member of the crew there that had committed suicide. And so this employee was wearing a suicide awareness pin, right? And, you know, if you ever kind of, you know, been to a Starbucks, see people at Starbucks, they often have pins on there. As a matter of fact, they're often encouraged to wear kind of bling, right? It's kind of because we're a cool store, right? That kind of thing. Um, but this, this employee was told that was kind of was sending the wrong message or bringing gloom and doom to the store or something like this. So she was told to put out, she wouldn't take it off. And so she was fired. I believe it was a woman. Yeah. But anyways, the NLRB's general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, has issued dozens of pending complaints against Starbucks around the country, including one involving hundreds of allegations of union busting in the Buffalo region, where organized notched the first of their hundreds of successful unionization votes over the past year. In the Buffalo hearing this August, Allman also testified that someone from Starbucks Corporate told him to follow around an employee who appeared to be holding a union poster, and that the district manager told him to start ensuring there was always a manager present at the store because that would discourage union chatter. Quote, She said this way, the partners won't feel comfortable talking about the union, and if they do, then you should discourage them, Allman said. Quote, She made me rewrite all the schedules so that there was a manager on from open all the way till close. Now, Starbucks refers to its employees as partners. So there you go. Starbucks is denied wrongdoing, wrongdoing, of course. And at the hearing, Starbucks attorney Jacqueline Phipps Polito um, Polito, told the judge that disciplinary actions were taken very carefully. Right. But everything kind of stands against that. Um Alman, basically the former Buffalo manager, testified that he resigned from Starbucks in January and informed employees he was doing so because of the company's anti-union campaign. Quote, I didn't want to do illegal stuff, he told the judge. I've worked my entire life to build up a career of integrity, and I was not going to allow Starbucks to take it. There. Proof is in the pudding. Union busting is there, folks. This is uh, this is what they do. right? This is what they do. And the fact that you've got someone at Starbucks, who's supposed to be this progressive company, right, um, and saying that we've always cared about our partners and blah 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 blah. This is the this is what happens when you don't play by their rules, right, in the way that they want you to do, and they don't listen to you. So, there you have it. Um, this week. I was really pleased to see this. Is that there is a piece that was published in the New York Times? Uh, it's called Leonard Leo pushed the courts right. Now he's aiming at American society. Um, and then the subtitle there is that after leading efforts to put conservatives on the bench, the activist has quietly built a sprawling network and raised huge sums of money to challenge liberal values. Um, so this is a pretty good article by Kenneth Vogel in the New York writing in the New York Times. As you know, we've had uh, Alyssa Bowen on the show among other folks who have talked about the influence of Leonard Leo. Um, in terms of packing the courts, the Supreme Courts, Leonard Leo uh, was famously kind of consulted directly by Donald Trump um, to give, you know, wanted to give him a list, give Trump a list of uh, appointments to the Supreme Court. Of course, the appointments to the Supreme Court, which Trump did, are all from Leonard Leo's list, right? That has been his kind of uh, his wig up until now. But now uh, he's, you know, he's been able to run, you know, he raises crazy amounts of money. He invests in all, as, as Alyssa Bowen has pointed out, um, that he invested in kind of, you know, all these, these networks of organizations that are designed um, to start kind of undoing, uh, you know, what he considers as uh, progressive um aspects of American society, (laughs) right? Uh, So it's just pretty, it's just pretty nasty. It's pretty nasty. Um, So do check that out. It's a great report. Um, It's worth the read um, to kind of further inoculate ourselves uh, and so that we are prepared for the onslaughts that are to come. Another kind of great piece of uh, news this week, I thought was uh, this report that came out in the um, IRL or I, It's like the international labor review or something. It comes out of its uh international labor relations review, uh comes out of Cornell University, their labor relations school there. Um, but it's a study that shows that um unionization through one's career is associated with $1.3 million mean increase in lifetime earnings. And that is that's significant because that is larger than the average gains from completing college, right? So very often, you know, we kind of say like students, you know, or tell kind of kids as they're growing up, you know, you got to go to college if you want to be able to earn stuff you're going to earn. Is college worth it? Yes, because you have a billion dollars more. Well, if we had more unionized workplaces, right, it's going to translate even to more earnings um, uh, for them. And now let me just read through the three findings. One, I just told you that the $1.3 million increase. Second, the lifetime earning gains are channeled um, entirely through our higher hourly wages and occurred despite earlier than average retirements for persistently unionized men. <clears throat> right? So it's looking at that. So what's, <clears throat> what that means also when we have a union contract, right? You end up, you end up having people who are retiring earlier because they're retiring under the current terms of the contract. And despite that fact, you have higher earning levels. So in college, you think about it like this in order to go to college. And if you actually want to kind of earn even more to go to gr- kind of like, you know, go for an advanced degree and kind of our master's degree or PhD or down the line, you're in school longer, or you're kind of in school, you're out of the workforce longer. So you're incurring debt as opposed to earnings during that period of time. Then you have to pay off that debt, right? And you start kind of later along the road. And so then what ends up happening is a lot of folks within that kind of college graduates end up working longer past kind of normal retirement age. And yet we're finding that this was not the case with unions. And third, the union wage premium is not constant throughout a worker's career. Instead, it increases with more years of union membership the cumulative advantage of union membership for workers' economic well-being are far greater than point-in-time estimates suggest. So in other words, what that means is that basically they're saying that, look, if you're kind of looking at, compare like a a union worker's wage, at a give at a snapshot at this point in time versus someone with a college degree, right? You're going to see kind of disparities, right? However, what they're saying is that the fact over time, Right. You're going to see a a gradual increase in wages and benefits and things like that in those union um, for those union members. That's where all the gains accrue is that over that time. So if you just take a snapshot, you're not seeing the full picture and you're not understanding how much uh, how important um, kind of unionization is. Um, So there you have it. So, you know, if you're looking at the very baseline, right, you know, because I hear you you don't understand. I mean, this is the number one reason why so many of my students go to college they go to college because they have been told their entire lives that if you hope to have a decent paying job, if you hope to be successful, if you hope to be able to have a family and support them, then you have to go to college. Why? And they can quote the statistic to me because over the lifetime, you're going to earn about a million dollars more. That means all other pathways Right to that kind of quote-unquote happiness are taken off the table in terms of our cultural ideology when it comes to um, kind of work and success and kind of um, uh, being able to have decent a uh, uh, decent living, right? And I would I remember you know growing up with that mentality, right? Growing up was when this is when it was first getting cemented, right? When I remember you know being, you know, no one ever told you directly. It was the way that they talked about particular jobs. Right. They wanted to encourage you to do jobs where you don't have to be dirty all day. Right. You, know, you go out and gonna do jobs where you're not going to be stuck in a blue collar job. Right. All that kind of stuff. Right. I remember it. It was everywhere. It was on TV. It was in the radio it was from our guidance counselors, even our teachers. Right. That was the kind of thing because it was college was becoming that, you know, that aspirational thing that for success that was happening at the same time right that we had these neoliberal policies that were going in and destroying right our unionized workforce in this country right and by shipping off you know kind of uh kind of work overseas gutting our economies and so on and so someone like me was growing up in Utica New York right you had to say look if you want to be if you want to be able to kind of have a decent living right you know and i grew up you know on food stamps <laughs> you know and so i grew up like you know for a good chunk of my life right we did not you know i was like you know my mom's teaching macrame classes in the basement in order to kind of make ends meet right um that kind of thing and so when somebody said, look you know go to college and that's your way out i'm all in you know i'm all in especially when i look around my town and i'm seeing this business close this business close that factory shut down that business close Right. Watching it all shuttered up, the boards go up, watch the downtown go to, uh, you know, kind of go into disrepair. Watching the jobs leave. Watching my neighbors, you know, their parents lose their jobs. Right. So that was the that was the kind of the framework. And then since then. Right. You know, it's gonna it's, Oh, good. We'll just have college is going to be the solution. Right. That, you know, we don't guarantee anything in this country, right? We don't we do kind of try to help everybody. No, no, you just gotta fight for it. You just gotta keep on fighting and how do you do that? You earn you know, you earn a degree. And how do you earn a degree? Well, you take on lots of debt. And during that same period of time too as well, we have the rapid increase of higher education cost and the immense amount of debt being held by student borrowers. The cost of higher education is just astronomically different than when I was when I was going to college, right? When I was looking to go to college, when these ideologies were firstborn, right? And now it's kind of sapping down a generation. And here you have an example of what, you know, people like Rick Smith have been saying for years. People in the union movement have been saying for years, like, look, the union is what made the middle class. It wasn't something that was special to America. We only had a strong middle class in the post-war period because of unions. And it's not a surprise that as union density has gone down, that means fewer and fewer places are unionized because we've shipped the work elsewhere and we've broke the unions, that you've had a huge disparity of wealth. That for the most part, workers' wages have remained relatively stagnant, whereas profits have gone through the roof and the top 1% has been given all the advantages, right? This is what happens. Unless you have a check on power, unless you have a collective ability to kind of organize around power and say that we want to share of the things that we've built, that we've owned, the wealth that we've created, then you you need to, you need to do organizing. You have to organize, you have to have unions. So, and there you go. There's a study that kind of shows it right there. So pretty cool stuff uh anyways i'm gonna take a quick break we're gonna come back we're gonna talk a little about some stuff here in pennsylvania um of course uh everything is going off the rails this week uh, there's no way i'm gonna be able to get to any all of it but i'm certainly gonna to try to get some of it um so when we come back we're gonna take a quick look at that we rem- want to remind you that you can help support this show by heading on over to patreon.com rc press you can become a patron for as little as five bucks a month uh, we will be back right after this quick break
0: On this day in labor history, the year was 1933. That was the day that the Executive Council of the American Federation of Labor decided to call for a boycott of Nazi Germany's goods and services. Jewish labor leaders in the United States led the push for the boycott. They were alarmed about the news coming from Germany since Adolf Hitler had taken over as chancellor that January. The day after the boycott decision, American Federation of Labor President William Green spoke with a reporter saying we found fresh justification for our action yesterday in today's announcement of Germany's withdrawal from the League of Nations and Disarmament Conference. In the months that followed the boycott, Jewish labor leaders continued to organize. In 1934, they formed the Jewish Labor Committee, a new organization headquartered in New York City. That year, the head of the Jewish Labor Committee, Baruch Charney Valetek, addressed the convention of the American Federation of Labor in San Francisco. He urged for more union action. In response, the American Federation of Labor founded the Labor Chest. The fund was established to aid in refugees fleeing Nazi persecution. It was also to support public education about the rising threat of fascism. In 1936, the AFL's chairman of the Labor Chest, Matthew Wall, declared that the events in Germany, quote, concern us as deeply as the cause of labor and that we shall spare no effort to help the victims of this regime. That same year, the Jewish Labor Committee organized a World Labor Athletic Carnival in New York City. The aim was to draw attention away from the Olympics that were being held in Nazi Germany. American Federation of Labor President William Green served as one of the honorary chairpersons for those games. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Here we are, and looking at our little PA focus in this week's last call. I um, want to remind you for uh, if you missed the, the top of the show, uh, I haven't seen it online yet. Um, I'm really looking forward to Out to Coop Live this coming Monday. Um, this coming Monday, October 17th at 7 p.m., I will be having Sharon Ward on the show, Sharon is the senior policy advisor for the Educational Law Center. And we're going to be talking about, you know, everything here. Right. School boards, book bans, hostile environments and the threat to justice and democracy. Um, In particular, we're going to look at some of the uh, legal challenges that are coming up against the Central Buck School District and the Penridge School District on the account of their book banning policies about stuff around student expression. And uh, we'll probably get into some of the stuff on the ACLU's excuse me, the ACLU's um, complaint that was filed against central bucks about creating a hostile environment for lgbtq students um so do check us out i hope you're gonna be there for monday october 17th at 7 p.m with sharon ward senior policy advisor for the educational law center um so back to it um yeah, Pennsylvania, a lot of stuff going on here to, uh, this week. Uh, one, I'm just going to have to say right off the bat, um, if you are not already reading the Bucks County Beacon, you need to start reading the Bucks County Beacon, um, especially right now. There is a slew of things that are coming down the pike um, one after the other, and the Beacon has been uh, doing phenomenal reporting on it. Uh, There's an article um, that came out this week, really, really important one. Um, ooh, I put the wrong link in there. Hold on a second. Um Sorry about that. Let me put the correct link in. Uh, So, uh, so basically, sorry about that. Um, so, there's a great piece in the Bucks County beacons called Pennsylvania's don't say gay bill could be more extreme than Florida's. It's a written by Catherine Caruso um, just came out, just dropped yesterday and it's a absolutely fabulous piece about a new, uh, a new bit of in, uh, newly introduced piece of legislation, a uh, new bill that uh, would basically be kind of modeled after, after uh, the Florida don't say gay bill. Um, but it's going to be even more um, extreme. All right, this is House Bill 2813. Okay, um, it is um, it is quite something else. It is being called. Let me see if they have the official name of it. Um, they're calling it the Parental Rights in Student Healthcare Act. Um, it's, it's House Bill 2813. Now, if you recall, when we had um, we had uh, um, Alyssa Bowen on talking about this discourse of students' rights. And how students rights i'm sorry parents rights parental rights uh is going to be is the um that overarching term that they're utilizing in order to try to act really kind of profound anti-lgbtq policies in schools uh restricting and kind of fair and real teaching of history um particularly around race relations in the united states a whole range of stuff like this right so the person uh the lead sponsor of the bill is stephanie borowitz um and if you've been around for a while listening to this show, uh, when Sean Kitchen used to co-host with me, um, Sean was always kind of tracking what Borowitz was doing because she was um, again, she's one of these people that was largely dismissed by uh, kind of mainstream media because she was kind of a nut job. Right. She's one of these really far off religious folks. uh, Just and she would say stuff come out of their mouth, be like, oh, my God. But Sean was always the one to kind of say, no, look, you got to understand she has got an influence among the base in the Republican Party and she is pushing all this stuff. And it matters. Right. Even if she's not going to get this kind of piece of legislation passed now, she's building for the future. And guess what? That was like five years ago. And here we are. Right. And she has been building. So it's good to read you a little teaser from the Catherine Caruso's article, but really want to encourage you to head on over to uh, Bucks County Beacon um, to make sure that you check this article out so the lead is this um republican state representatives in pennsylvania have introduced a new bill aimed at limiting classroom instruction that is even more restrictive than florida's parental rights in education act known as hb 2813 the newly proposed bill would prohibit students and teachers from discussing sexual orientation or gender identity in the classroom in public and charter schools across the states Now, according to Representative Stephanie Borowitz, the lead sponsor of the bill, the legislation was modeled after the Florida's Law, so they're not hiding it, right? They're saying, like, we saw that, we want that, right? Um, it was modeled after the Florida's Law, dubbed the Don't Say Gay Law, and uses nearly identical language declaring that the, quote, fundamental right of a parent, unquote, is to, quote, make decisions regarding the student's upbringing and well-being, unquote. While Florida law, which went into effect, uh, while well, the Florida's Law, went into effect in July, bans classroom instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity in kindergarten through third grade, HB 2813 is ultimately more expansive, extending all the way through fifth grade. However, Borowitz has admitted that this doesn't go far enough for her, indicating that she would ideally prefer to extend this bill to include every grade level, quote, It needs to be really it needs to really be protected all the way up to 12th grade. We need to go all the way, she said during a news conference at the state capitol building in September, adding that the goal of the bill is to, quote, protect our children from indoctrination. Right. We know the the, all sorts of buzzwords, all sorts of dog whistles going on here. And this, of course, comes against a larger backdrop of educational gag orders and anti-LGBTQ bills being pushed by Republican lawmakers around the country in an effort to attack LGBTQ rights and dismantle public education. All right. So that's this one piece. There's another part to it. And I quote from the article again, in addition to to severely limiting teaching techniques related to sexual orientation and gender identity, the bill would also require schools to notify parents or legal guardians of any physical or mental health care services a student receives allows par- allow parents to deny students access to these services and bar teachers and staff from encouraging students to withhold information about their mental or physical health from their parents, which experts say could include being forced to, forced to out LGBTQ students to their parents. And uh, uh, in the article, they also quote um, Casey Pick, uh, who is the Senior Fellow for Advocacy and Government Affairs at the Trevor Project. Uh, who says, you know, this vagueness, the part of the problem is that everything is very vague, right? About what counts, uh, what counts and what doesn't count, what you can say, what you can't say. Um, and that's intentional. And this is one of the pieces that, and also you know, go read the rest of this because, I mean, this bill, we need to stop this bill. This needs to be built. Now, G- Governor Wolf has said that he's going to, he'll veto it if it comes to his desk. But guess what? There's an election, <laughs> right? Governor Wolf is not going to be there for much longer right so this is going to be with us next year so that vote for the governor's office is a vote about whether or not you want this in our schools right whether you want basically the ability um, for these right wing extremists these kind of a Christian nationalists to determine the content of the curriculum in our schools right whether you care to protect all students that's on that is you know on offer this election <laughs> Right. The important thing is about the vagueness of this. Right. And. You know, it's really ingenious in many ways, because. Our school board here in Penridge and they do this in the Central Bucks School District, do it as well, they write the bill in such a way. That leaves key things open for interpretation. Right. So in Penridge, it was the advocacy a teacher advocacy, where even like the superintendent Bolton, could not tell anybody, right, what actually counts and what doesn't count, right? They're saying, we're not saying that, you know, you know, a student couldn't distribute this, but, or like Valentine's, although, you know, technically the bill could be interpreted in that way, right? right. So because there's vagueness that's built into a bill like this, or it's built into the old school policies, really what the issue is, is that they know that this is about power, it's not about the content of the bill per se. So you have a two-part two, two part move. One, you have to be able to kind of ensure that you retain power over these key institutions, whether it's a school board or whether it's a state legislature, right, so that you get to do the interpretations about what this means and what it doesn't mean. So they can craft the bill in a way to an average voter who reads it. It doesn't sound unreasonable because the average voter doesn't look at politics as a power play, right? They look at it, maybe ideologies, a Democrat, Republican, is this going to be good for me? But they don't see all the the working, you know, working parts. And frankly, our media doesn't cover it. (laughs) Right. Which is why you got to read the Bucks County beacon because they do cover it. That's why you got to have, you know, like organizations like True North Research, right? We've had on here. That's why you've got to have organizations like Little Sis, right? Um, <clears throat> like people that we've had on the show. That's why we have this show. <laughs> to try to unpack that so we can see behind the veil, right? See how the game is played. Because you cannot, if you're not playing the same game, you're going to lose. Especially if the people who are playing that other game are already in control of the reins of power right? So that's really kind of what's going on. And so this don't say gay bill, um, again, HB 2813, please look it up. Um, this is kind of kind of going through the system now. And so the question is, is are we going to be able to stop it in time? Um, and are we going to actually have a Democratic governor in this state, which will veto anything coming forward? Well, and what's at stake? Well, if you have a effectively a gag order where a teacher basically has to question, well, I see this, this student is being bullied, right? Because they're, um, they're kind of like transgender or they're gay or I, um, or, you know, or they're kind of like just gender nonconforming kind of more broadly. Right. And if I bring that up and say, Hey, stop, you can't do that because they're X, Y, and Z, or I approach the student and then say, listen, Are they, why are they choosing you have a conversation about it and they're saying they're, they're, they're calling me all these names, right? They're calling me this homophobic names and doing all this other kind of stuff or they're doing this or another scenario where a student is kind of looking for help, right? Looking for a point and maybe sees a teacher as a potential ally, which they can actually kind of say, listen, I, I just, you know, I, I don't know where to go or who to talk to or, you know, and Maybe they come out to that, you know, so we'll say, I'm gay, but I haven't told anybody, something like that, right? And at that point, a teacher has got to say, well, okay, they got two things going on in mind. You got the, the concern of the student that's sitting in front of you, and you've got, you know, that big question about if I talk about this with a student, um, am I going to have to tell their parents or face losing my job? If I even talk about them, do I face losing my job, right? And that puts those students even in more jeopardy, more risk. Why? Here's a perfect example, right? Um, I'll read this this one, last part of this article, right? So, So as for what accepting and affirming adults can do to help support LGBTQ students if this bill were to pass, experts recommend that teachers, counselors, and parents find a way to show students that they are a safe and trustworthy person to talk to and confide in. Quote, when LGBTQ youth are not seen, valued and heard or affirmed, we have witnessed the devastating effects, unquote, PFLAG, Bucks County leaders, Rachel Fitzpatrick and Jessica um, Becky told the Bucks County Beacon, quote, these harmful and damaging effects leave our LGBTQ loved ones at risk for depression, isolation, anxiety and poor school outcomes. And it says also, however, research from the Trevor Project has also shown that having at least one supportive and accepting adult in an LGBTQ young person's life can reduce their risk of suicide by at least 40 percent. That's what we're talking. We're talking about life and death, ultimately. Right. Quality of life and life and death. And while I hear what the folks from PFLAG are saying, yes, teachers and all this need to figure out how to do that. Right. What that policy is designed to do is put pressure on those teachers, those counselors, and those parents, right? Particularly the teachers and counselors for being that supportive person. right? That's why there's a lot of folks that have come out like in central Bucks and stuff that are basically, I'm not going to abide by this policy. I'm not going to not talk about this and be there for my students. No way. So there you have it. A lot going on. I'm telling you. Um, we talked about this a little last week, too, as well. I just want to kind of put it back in. It's a great piece on the Bucks County Beacon again, talking about the ACLU's um, complaint filed against the Central Bucks School District, um, basically uh, with uh, the civil rights divisions of the U.S. Departments of Justice and Education. Um, kind of very kind of important stuff. And the base, what's great about this, the, um, there's a, a piece WHYY had last week, and the Bucks County Beacons got it. Um, but there's links to the actual... Um, uh, the actual complaint, which is worthwhile checking out. Um, so. This one that was from WHY from last week, um, does look through, looks at all the different ways that the administration is both the intimidating faculty and in creating a hostile environment for LGBTQ youth and how that is a violation of their title nine uh, rights and the um, equal protection clause under the, the, 14th amendment. So right now this stands as a, and I think I might've misspoke about this last week. Um, It's not a lawsuit as of yet, is my understanding what it is. It is a formal complaint to the um, to um, calling on the Department of Justice, the Department of Education to investigate this and to ultimately put an end to that. Um, If they do not, they don't respond in a timely, timely manner. The ACLU says they're kind of prepared to move forward. Um, They've also said in pretty no uncertain terms, if there's continued um, efforts to intimidate employees or threaten them, then they are prepared to bring uh, support those, uh, those individuals and bring suit to as well. So this is good. Um, it sucks. It has to come to this, but here we are. <clears throat> and this just dropped, I guess, yesterday, people are kind of started to hit the kind of news yesterday, but the proud boys, um, their head, um, the founder Gavin McGinnis, is being brought to Penn State University on October 24th. Uh, it's being billed as a comedy show. Um, but you know, uh, anytime you bring the proud boys into something, I mean, it's already a little bit funny that these people like exist, but the fact that they were instrumental in, uh, hopping up violence against, uh, I'll say black lives matter protesters, but also, um, advocates for political violence under the Trump administration, I'll give you them see if I can find this one piece real quick. So, um, as, uh, Will Bunch wrote in his kind of recent column about this stuff um, that he says he quotes him at one point saying, "I want violence." McGinnis, who has clung to a veneer of respectability for uh, also founding the magazine that became Vice, proclaimed on his talk show in the spring of 2016 as Trump was claiming the GOP presidential nomination. "Quote: I want punching in the face. I'm disappointed in Trump supporters for not punching enough." Those words um, came just before McGinnis publicly announced he organizes followers into the Proud Boys gang. Right, that's why it got it got lashed. He wanted to bring like street fighting back to political discourse. Right, um, that's what the Proud Boys' contribution is. So this organization that got founded at Penn State, right, called the Uncensored America. Right, I mean, again, you you follow the money, man. I'm telling you is you've got the, the guy who is the president of the uh, Penn State's uh, Turning Points USA, which is kind of like, again, connected to all the dark money sources that you could possibly ever want, being funneled into um, building this. It's Charlie Kirk's organization, and he's been funded by all the, the big dark money folks. Um, so I've been working at Turning Points USA. And then just as you get um, kind of ready for – the election, he moves and he becomes a field organization for, uh, organizer for Trump, and now he's uh, started a new organization called Uncensored America, where he's starting off by bringing uh, Gavin McGinnis um, to the, um, um, to Penn State to talk. All right. And now there's an interesting conversation that's going on, um, I, I, this is where I, so I have a link to um, uh, Will Bunch's piece in the Philadelphia Inquirer on this. Because immediately what happens on social media is like, oh, they're trying to cancel Gavin McInnes and blah, 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 and free speech censorship, blah, 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 hypocrisy, blah, 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 right? Free speech absolutism, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, Will Bunch goes through and kind of like lays out kind of what the problem is here and so on. Um, the bigger, even the bigger issue here for me is that you have got an organization, an organized right wing who sees it in their interest when they think, okay, we want to have something on uh, freedom of speech? Who are we going to go to first? We are going to go to people like the violent gang, the Proud Boys, who took part in the insurrection. We're going to take their founder, who is constantly who's, who's a misogynist, freaking racist, right? Western chauvinist, <laughs> right? And an advocacy for for using violence to achieve your political aims, Gavin McGinnis, that's who you want to bring as your show person, right? So this is like trolling that is now getting off the internet and is going into our, our public sphere. And again, it is not new. It is telling that the other kind of like keynote person that they they want to bring, right? This, you know, this quote unquote organization right, uncensored America, is uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, right, who was also one who was kind of like a, at one point was the center focus of this extreme right, and they was advocating kind of violence and hatred and all this other kinds of stuff. There you go. So there's the one issue of, okay, you know, there's, there's a push to not allow Gavin McInnes to come to campus and speak right, as part of this stuff. And there's really good reasons why that should be, why she'd not be allowed to come to campus is because you don't. It's like, uh, you know, uncensored America basically is saying they want to have like a free exchange of ideas. There's been a clampdown on ideas and things like this. The, they're the Proud Boys have not contributed to an intellectual conversation about democracy in America. They have brought violence to the table. That is not an intellectual contribution. That is a reversion to pre-democratic norms. They are intolerant. They are misogynistic. Right? So anyways, check out Will Bunch's column. It's a a really good one. Um, It's a really good one on this one, and it's worth um, the further discussion. It should also be noted that uh, it's not just that the the Proud Boys are or Gavin McInnes uh, from the Proud Boys is coming to speak there. The program is actually being called Stand Back and Stand By, right, which is basically what Trump said to the Proud Boys. Like, get ready. Don't attack yet, but wait. Get ready. But the event. Uh, is basically they're going to be uh, spending about $7,522.43 in student student activity funds, which will mainly go as an honorarium to McInnes and his co-host, Alex Stein, who is a self-proclaimed professional troll. How about that? Three high-ranking Penn State administrators wrote that they, the group backing McGinnis's appearance said that Uncensored America has a conscious right to sponsor this presentation on our campus. Right? What, what's important about um, Will Bunch's article is he says, quote, this idea about freedom of speech, right? He says that, quote, that lofty ideal about freedom of speech and so on, many young uh, uh, is struggling today. Many young people have come to see what some call as free speech as a cover for maintaining noxious hierarchies like racism and misogyny, with someone like Gavin McInnes serving as Exhibit A. I've applauded the college kids who've shown up to protest these toxic views of such right-wing speakers, but yet I also feel it crosses a line when speakers are shut down altogether or when activists steal copies of a campus newspaper. I'm on record with columns criticizing students at Berkeley of all places who silence the odious Ann culture in 2017, and a University of Missouri Missouri communications professor who bizarrely blocked journalists from covering a protest in 2015. My grossly unrealized fantasy is a new campus paradigm around speech, one that allows oxygen for activists to beat down racism and sexism, while also upholding the spirit of uh, of 1964. At the core of this debate is an aggressively simple notion that colleges and universities were created to study, formulate, and debate ideas, especially controversial ones. The even greater ideal is the the most notable concept that intellectual discourse, not violence, is the one true and moral way for humankind to solve its problems, which is what makes Penn State handling a microphone to a violence advocate like McInnes and tossing some of its tapped-out students cash his way in the process makes it such a mockery of academic freedom. That's really at the core of the issue. Um, What I hope, is that, you know, that um, this doesn't just devolve into a kind of like, you know, the classic cancel culture debate, but that this is going to serve as organizing of students on that campus against McInnes, right? Against the Proud Boys, against the use of violence in politics, right? And looking for creative ways forward. And the fact that, you know, someone like, you know, this guy, who's the head of this organization... that he's going to have a nice career in right-wing politics, right? He's because he's trying to own the libs by bringing violence to the campus of Penn state. So anyways, go check that out. This is going to be, you're going to be seeing a lot about that coming up. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. This is their, a nice little October surprise too as well. Um, anyways, I wanted to kind of close this section before we kind of get to the last call with, um, Kind of thinking a lot about the stuff that's been going on in the um, the school boards and the toll it's taken on our communities and taken on people, right? So this is not just a political game. This is kind of a people's lives. And I was reminded of that uh, again today um, when I came, you know, looked at this this Twitter thread that came up um, by Tracy Sweet, uh Suits. I'm sorry, um, she was a former school board member, and I wanted you to go read some of the things that she posted. She wrote, it's been almost a year since my term on Central Buck School District School Board ended, and while I was in the thick of it, I didn't really comprehend the level of trauma I was experiencing. For a glimpse into what I am still working through, here's a thread. At my kids' back-to-school nights, I often wear a hat in hopes I am not recognized. Every month, I plan to go to the school board meeting and then have a panic attack the day of and cannot bring myself to enter the room." Fall bash, which is, you know, party, whatever, at my daughter's school, dad will take you. I'm a headroom parent coordinator for my daughter's class. When the rest of the team was assigned, I looked them up on social media to see if if I recognize them as allies or haters because I worry about past conflict coming back. I'm not looking forward to the leaves falling off the trees because I feel exposed in my own yard. And finally, I was actually afraid to open mail this week because for the past couple of years, hand-addressed envelopes with no return address usually contain something unpleasant, scary, or harassing. It's not easy to put yourself and your family out in public like this, and I have a lot of trauma yet to work through, but I don't regret the time I served in my community. When I talk about extremism, we talk about extremism in this program. And what the extremism has brought to our community and why that we have to fight back against these kind of like oligarchs that are funding all this money into the and pumping up this extremism and supporting it in their communities. It's because this is the toll it takes on people. Tracy Suits did not sign up for school board because she was like a political ideologue. She signed up to serve for community, serve her school, to take part, to help out, to do service. And instead is now still a year, still living kind of with this kind of trauma, this experience of what it meant to be under the constant gun and under the threats, under the harassment, being yelled at with some of the most extreme things ever. To being, you know, afraid as like, are my, you know, you know, day one, you're like, okay, I live in this community with all these people that are around. And then next having to question whether that person that's over there, right, a member of our community is someone that wants wants to bring harm to me or my children or my community. So I think that's important that we, you know, want to read that just in part because so that we always keeping that in the presence of our mind that it's, we're talking about this impact on people, right? These, these, these right wing ideologues and extremists who are, you know, trying to gain political advantage by going after LGBTQ youth, um, which basically is going to put those kids at higher risk of suicide. The people who fund, spend like tens of thousands of dollars to support school board candidates who are going to propagate QAnon extremist theories, conspiracy theories, and threaten school board members as somehow groomers or something like this. I mean, like, things like that are having direct impact on school board members and other members of the community. Right? Not only, it's not that it just divides us. Right? It's not just division by itself. I don't necessarily think being divided on particular issues is a problem. We can disagree. The problem is, is that when one well-funded side decides that it is going to advocate harassment and violence to achieve its ends, is going to hide the ball on where it's getting its marching orders from. And it's going to tap into a nationwide effort that is designed to roll back democracy, roll back multicultural democracy. And reinstall some sort of like warped freaking notion of Christian nationalism. That's the problem. And the effects run through people like Tracy Suits. Like you and me. Like our kids. So, there you have it. Anyways, last thing for the day, uh, today's last call, um, just, you know, today is the, uh, they released it, I guess at midnight or whatever last night, but, um, the finale of the, um, uh, Rings of Power, the, uh, new Lord of the Rings series on, or, or Tolkien in, inform series on Amazon Prime. Uh, yes, I've watched it all. Yes, I have lots of thoughts about it. I don't want to kind of spoil too much about it. Um, but I will say this, um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, but I thoroughly enjoy world building, big kind of epic stuff and things like this. And I'm, I'm okay with slow unveiling of a story. Okay. And I think that's one of the things I like about, uh, like even about Tolkien, right? When I read Tolkien, um, you have some of that too, as well. But there's you know for people like i mean i try to watch it with my kids but they found it a little slow right in terms of what was what was going to happen what's going to happen next i happen to really appreciate that about it um especially if it is secured for several seasons down the road where all the stuff is allowed to come together over time right i kind of appreciate that kind of stuff um but it's been shot amazingly. The acting has been phenomenal. And, um, I know I'm talking about very superficial stuff because I don't want to issue any spoilers for those folks who haven't watched it yet. Um, but I am going to watch that today, um, to see the conclusion of it. I've also been watching the, uh, house of dragons, the, um, latest kind of, well, I guess it's a prequel, like uh, chapter of what we got started in game of thrones. Um, I'm really loving that too, as well. Um, and I'm really curious of where it's going to go. They've got, I guess, two more shows um, coming out for this season. Um, and then we've got, you know, the new season of The Wheel of Time coming up in November. Um, which I'm really looking forward to. I really liked season one. Um, I am looking forward to it. I want to see if it, we get the what the exact date of release yet. Do we have it? Uh, release date. So this is all speculative. Yeah. the Yeah. all, All I'm finding right now is early November. That's what I, that's what I read, um, a few days ago. So early November is supposed to come out. Um, so that's great. I'm looking forward to it. Um, So hopefully, Oh yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just getting distracted. So the, um, and you know, we talked about this, uh, Amy connect and I, um, we're talking about maybe trying to do a show uh, a little bit about wheel of time, looking backward, looking forward. Um, so hopefully we're going to be able to kind of carve out some time, be able to do that. That That'd be kind of fun. So anyways, everybody that's going to do it for me today. Um, it has been a, I have had a long, long week. Um, I don't know if other people are finding this too as well. I know it has to do in part with the change of the seasons. Um, also has to do with the kind of load of work that is kind of coming my way at work. Um, and, uh, but it's just been, I've been exhausted all week and here we are. I'm really, I'm looking forward to the weekend, um, kind of a little downtime. So that'll be good. So there we go. So I hope to see all of you on Monday for, um, uh, Sharon Ward, uh, Sharon Ward will be here at, um, Monday at, uh, 7 PM for out to Coop live. And, um, I tweeted out and I appreciate everything coming back folks. When I just tweeted out, you know, today's one of these days this is yesterday. I said this today's one of the days that I wish I could do raging chicken full time. Cause there's so much good stuff going on there. I mean, this is what it was one of these weeks too, as well in the midst of all this stuff going on, people are getting in touch with me saying like, Oh, you'd love to come on your show. It would be, be great to have here. And I wish I had the time to bring everybody on. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, it would be like, These are conversations I want to have, the conversations I think are good for the community that kind of like expand kind of what we're doing, um, highlighting just amazing work that's happening in the community. And, you know, it's a it's a shame. I feel a loss for not being able to kind of spend more time doing that um, more with the show. But, you know, we live the life we've got, not the life we wish we had. So there we have it. Um, anyways, uh, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, we will be back on Monday with Sharon Ward. Um, in the meantime, I wish you all the best, everybody. I hope that you're going to have a good weekend. Uh, looking forward to the creeping up to uh, Halloween and midterm elections. So keep up the organizing, and uh, we'll see you out there. All right. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Patreon.com slash RC Press to help support the show. We'll see you on the interwebs right back here on Monday.
0: See ya!